0: Welcome to the Sunday Morning Linux Review, episode 296, Monoculture is a Cancer. And I'm Tom Lawrence. Phil Parada. Jay LaCroix. Tony is, uh, he's got some stuff going on, so he was not able to make it today, so we're all here. And you may have noticed the missing music. The sound thing broke, and I'm not going to do it in post, so we figured this is an opportunity. Um, we had asked last time, we got some feedback, and we're going to ask again. Uh, we're going to redo all of this. I um, Well, unless Tony tells us no, but I think... We all ganged up on them.
1: Please pardon our bits. We're working on it.
0: Yeah. So we're working on all those things. And I figure you're not here for uh, the Leave It to Beaver music. You really probably just want to hear us talk about, hey, Phil, what'd you do since you've been gone for a little while? <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, it, it's really good to be back. Um, a lot of life stuff happened. Uh, funerals, um, Thanksgiving, uh, impromptu travel, all that kind of stuff. Life. Yeah. Um, but on the upside, uh, We got solar panels installed at the server farm, and that is so beyond exciting um, because on the on the power inverter that sends power from the solar panels to the house, there is a module that has a nice little web interface and you can see all of the stats of your solar array. So I'm going to get that hooked up to my network, get it VLAN off, um, and that's that's going to be really cool.
0: Neat. So that's been, you've been working on all these solar projects.
1: That's been pretty much what you're doing. Yeah. That in life. Cool. How about you, Jay?
0: So I have
2: been spending
0: more time
2: on my YouTube channel in the past week than I think I have ever spent on it um, during the entire life of the channel. I've been recording some videos here at this same studio at Tom's office and doing different camera angles and trying a different format, just trying to basically revolutionize what I'm doing And I got kind of carried away. I recorded a bunch of hours of footage to the point where I'm still editing and I have plans of having videos I've recorded all the way through uh, the beginning of January that I've recorded ahead of time. And I'm just editing all this footage, doing some reviews and things. So I'm having a lot of fun with that. And, you know, Tom got me addicted to Caden live uh, at his PenguinCon talk. And I kind of just... Went wild with it in the video editing, and it's really powerful, although it crashes constantly, <laughs> you know. Um, it works really well, so I have a lot of uh, videos coming. I, I just did a, one on Fedora. I have an Antergos one that's going to be um, on my channel in an hour and a half from recording time, so it's already going to be there by the time anyone hears this. And that's on my channel, LearnLinux.tv, if you haven't already checked that out. And then, in addition to that, as if that wasn't enough work with YouTube, my son and I started a channel called Cross, excuse me, Cross Generation Gaming at crossgengaming.tv. We just started it where I play a classic retro game from my childhood and just get his reactions. And it's just a lot of fun that we've been working on. And we recorded um, three episodes here at the same studio. <laughs> Yesterday, uh, so that's going well, but other than that, back on topic on Linux, I've had a chance to take a look at time shift, which i um I don't have a conclusive opinion on it yet, but it's fascinating to me because it basically allows you to snapshot your distribution. It does not snapshot or is not intended for snapshotting your home directory or files, so it's not <clears throat> intended to be like a um time machine replacement. I would say it's more like system restore if I had to um you know make a comparison there. But it works really well. I've had um, success with it. With the exception of Fedora, I did a backup and a restore. completely shredded the OS to the point where it would not boot. And what I found out was that I hated to do this by disabled SC Linux just to find out if that would solve it. And I reinstalled Fedora, disabled SC Linux, ran a backup and restore. Perfect. And Time Shift allows you to do all kinds of different things. Um, I have an article I'll, I'll I'll talk about later. So in addition to that, I... Found a dock that works with Linux, a Thunderbolt Dock 3 works with my Galago Pro, so I can Ooh. get a um, you know, monitor set up and all my peripherals. It's expensive, and there's cheaper ones that'll work, but I wanted uh, something solid. And it actually works with my Galago Pro, but just a pro tip I found out after a month of troubleshooting why it didn't work. There's a BIOS setting called DDI that has to be set to TBT in the BIOS on the Galago Pro for whatever reason. But it works. So just hardware research, time shift, and YouTube for me. What about you, Tom?
0: So, you know, YouTube, of course, uh, I've been rocking out a lot of videos. And we have this fun project coming up that, you know, like Jason, do you ever get nervous about big projects? Maybe a little. But, you know, I think pushing yourself makes it fun. Mm-hmm. Um, somehow, by magic, because I don't know how it's actually going to happen, but I have an idea, so I'm not completely clueless. We're installing 300 Wi-Fi units. <laughs> For a client, um, three hundred and I think there's I don't know uh, twelve or thirteen switches in all, all PoE and fiber lines connecting them all, and we have to build wow. it all out. So it's going to be a fun IT project. Uh, it's also just a scale problem because uh, there's a set there's a series of VLANs and SSIDs and stuff that goes over one firewall. There's multiple firewalls, so the VLANs don't even land on one firewall. Wow. For policy routing, they have to actually. Um, all come down and go out another firewall. So one connects to their Cisco ASA, another one comes next to the NetGate that's sitting behind me. Wow. So this is just going to be a lot of fun. It's uh, There's some trickery in how all this is going to work. <laughs> uh, we moved to the production version of FreeNAS. I was already running it somewhat in production. I didn't yeah. put everything mission critical on it until it went to um, out of release candidate. Uh, the new version of FreeNAS has gone really, really well for me. I haven't had any real issues with it, um, but... I, I did complain after I waited two weeks to do the review because the stupid graphs weren't showing up, which they worked fine in Release Candidate. Oh, yeah. Um, for reasons unknown, I rebooted it and they are back. And I had rebooted it twice to try and solve it after I loaded it to try to figure out why they wouldn't work. Now they're all there again. After I rebooted again the other day, um, I got nothing.
2: It's, well, it's gone well for me, too, with with the exception of that weird uh, plug-in problem I mentioned where it would fail to create a plugin if I chose DHCP because I I do static leases, mm-hmm. and w- what I had to do was create a static IP, bring up the plugin, and then later switch it to DHCP. But other than that, it's been
0: going well for me. Yeah, it's it's been really stable software. Um, I've been running Zabbix now for about a month. I've been really liking Zabbix. Uh, I run it, not officially. I don't know where the FreeBSD, I'm sorry, FreeNAS people stand on this, but I loaded the Zabbix uh, precompiled tool instead of trying to use SNMP to monitor it. SNMP just doesn't gather enough information about ZFS and about FreeNAS, so I loaded up the Zabbix clients. Uh, you create a Zabbix user, you set it up. I didn't set it to auto-start in case I ever had problems with it, so I just started it manually, but it's so rare I ever reboot my FreeNAS servers. Um it's been working great to monitor my free NAS servers in Zabbix, so I've been pl- I just load their plugin and everything. Now it's hmm. it's super tiny. It's not like it's taking up some massive amount of bandwidth or uh, memory, uh, but yeah, it's been kind of cool playing with it. Zabbix is definitely really neat. Uh, it's so yeah. much to learn because a lot of people have asked me about doing YouTube videos on it. I'm like, boy, if I do a Zabbix series, it, it's gonna kind of have to be in depth. Their documentation's great. It just it's just there's a lot they if you follow their instructions, everything works as their documentation says, but there's not a shortcut it's this many steps it's uh it just has every bell and whistle um, there's a guy who did a talk how they monitor seven thousand servers with it, and wow. um it's just a really neat thing, and the problem is too many people think it's Ansible because they're like, oh, if there's a trigger that alerts me to something, then it can remediate it, and I can then push out commands, and that's where people start breaking zavix They're like, we're a monitoring, we support triggering, and it should trigger your Ansible, not Zabbix, to run the thing. So they, there's some concepts that I want to cover about what Zabbix is and isn't, because that's where some of the problems come in. I think a fantastic topic for a show would be uh, monitoring and alerting, and then
1: all oh, the yeah. philosophy that goes on with that. Um, I've I've had Zabbix deployed at a previous company, and that worked well for us, um, much better than Nagios ever did, but. Mm. Yeah. Then again, we're going to have Nagios purists who will argue day and night with me.
2: I'm I'm a Nagios fan myself. I run it on everything. But I do see that there's some value in Zabbix, especially when you showed me. It's been four years since I've used it. And I'm of the opinion if, if your monitoring solution alerts you when there's issues, it doesn't matter which one it is because at the end of the day, that's all you need is to be alerted when there's a problem. And if it does that been great
0: yeah and you know like one of the things that kind of turned me on to it was uh if you have a mixed environment it has no problem supporting like everything including windows servers so they can all come to one dashboard because the zabbix agents are open source and they're available for bsd linux all flavors um and for windows uh both server or workstations you can monitor workstation information with it too um so that kind of turned me on to it um does nagios have a client that you load on systems it's called nrpe okay
2: and it's, just a, it's a service that runs, and there's a config file okay. where you define all the, the commands there, that, That's
0: how it's basically all it is. Same as Amex. So. I mean,
2: some not all things require the NRPE. It's only when you need something executed on the remote system. So if you're just checking, is it up? Is it pingable? You don't actually need a client for that. But if you want to do anything where you want it to report back to you the status of something, then that's when you need to have the client installed it. on it.
0: So, yeah, so the monitoring tools would probably be a great discussion. Um, and like you said, it, it invokes a lot of debate. I don't think Nagios is specifically a bad platform or Zagos is, you know, Zabbix is better or worse. It just is. and It's uh, whatever
2: works better for you and your use case. And, again, you know, you, you want to know what's going on with your servers. And if that gives you it, whatever that solution is, then that's fine. And and you know. for the
1: for the title of the show's sake monocultures bad. So yeah.
0: monocultures a cancer. There is definitely no monoculture mono <laughs> in monitoring and alerting. That's for sure. That's correct. No, no, everyone has an opinion on it and uh, they they're not all they, they may all be right. That's the, that's the fun <laughs> thing about Linux. People can tell you four ways to do things and they're probably all right. <laughs> they're probably all equally right. correct. <laughs> All right, let's move on to listener feedback. Now, uh, we are missing that little bite. We don't have the phone number that we've been inserting for a little while. That's gone. So you contact us via show at smlr.us and that's show.smlr.us. And we will read your feedback on the air, unless you implicitly say, please don't read my feedback on the air, but usually it's why people email us. (laughs) Right.
1: Um so we got one a couple days ago from Scott Schuster of the twenty four hour webmachine dot com oh cool and he thanked us uh, for the auto shred tool um, that you run here in the shop Tom and we still run it and for those of you that don't know, autoshred is a wrapper script around the package shred which a lot which uh, runs DBAN under the hood to perform uh, drive wiping so you what you can do is you plug in a hard drive, a USB, whatever, and Auto shred will automatically shred all the data. And it's got a little configuration file um, so you can configure like, okay, I want this to perform like three wipes of this data. So that way you can get nothing off of it. Or if you're super absolutely paranoid, four wipes. I mean, go for wipes.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And I'm a big fan of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and I really appreciate
1: the uh, Shredder uh,
2: picture that's actually there in the studio right next to it on the wall.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, If you go, uh, we'll have a link to the Auto Shred Project in the show notes. Um, It's also on my GitHub page. Yep. Um, And there's there's a picture of this setup in, in Tom's shop. And then when you start auto-shred itself, there's (laughs) a quick little ASCII
0: art of shredder that pops up.
2: Awesome. That's so cool.
0: Yeah, so that's definitely fun to play with. We shred all – we just make sure any hard drives that come through here always get triple-wiped if we plan to use them. Uh, We also use it as a testing method um, to make sure the drives – because once you've walked the heads across three times – you'll know whether or not that drive's got some bad I was
2: going to ask if that actually would effectively do something similar that right does when it goes through all the different sectors, if that would actually cause the error correction
0: to... No, um, um, we're not bypassing the error correction like Spinrite does. Okay. Uh, so the error correction is still left in place because we are using the drive's controller. But by walking the drive all the way across, the error correction will remap anything um, and hopefully uh, determine, because a lot of drives don't survive auto shred um, because they can't walk the whole drive and you may not know if you load windows because you have a one terabyte drive and you're loading windows back in that's only like 60 or 50 gigs whatever bloatware windows installs um you didn't use the whole drive it's not so you start copying your photos that you hit that bad spot on the drive
2: i've seen that yeah
0: and this this is also
1: a solution for people who don't want to put um a sledgehammer or a drill or a bullet through a hard drive and then make a huge mess yeah
2: yeah. Can be therapeutic though. Oh, if, for if, sure. If you have the uh, ability or, or the patience to clean up after it,
0: <laughs> and you and you guarantee that uh, it's destroyed if you uh, do smash it physically, because we learned that even self-encrypting drives—how you guys have probably seen this—aren't yep. self-encrypting. Yep. So. Yeah, you someone audited a, that and it's not the security's not as good as we had all hoped. We
2: used to use a drill press at a previous company. It was yeah. just fun watching a stack of drives and this thing just coming and, straight through them. And for like uh,
0: compliant for compliance reasons cuz uh there's sometimes it's only accepted that you destroy them for compliance. We have a physical hard drive shutter here for like for those drives. <laughs> and this one. All right, what else do we have in listener feedback?
1: We had um we had someone uh Tony Tony actually sent us feedback. Uh, oh. <laughs> he, he sent an email to show at smlr.us about playing Tetris in your terminal. And he linked to an article from opensource.com. And um, I, I got it working personally. It was pretty fun. And then it reminded me of uh, SSH Tron. Oh, yeah. And uh, then I got uh, roped up into playing NetHack for a while because I was starting oh, to I game. I love NetHack. Yeah, how, how did you guys fare with uh, I, I Tetris? I didn't
2: get it running myself. I I did run into the library problem, the same one they mentioned in the in the um in the notes. I just haven't had time to really. Go through it. And as I'm here, you know, multitasking as we're talking, I was, I was actually in the process of sending up an LXC <laughs> container, and I figured, you know, I, I can mess with libraries in the LXC container, or I was supposed to say Lexi, but I say LXC, but I, I could actually run it in there. Um, maybe by the end of the show, maybe I'll get it running, uh, and it'd be cool to have it in a little container. It'll be completely segregated from the OS. I could back it up, and we could just deploy the container.
0: Cool. Yeah, Tetris is the most sold game in U.S. history. Uh, you know, if I can find it, there's the YouTube video about the history of Tetris, and it's deeply fascinating uh, because there's, it's very, very complex history how it came here to the U.S. and what happened to the guys uh, involved in it because it was developed in-house on a state-owned in Russia company, which you cannot sell things for profit for but the US capitalism at work took profit from it, but couldn't get they actually couldn't give it to them because it was state run there's an entire complex legal history of tetris and the developers and how they even were able to get it out of russia and the craziness that was involved in it also, John Green recently did the Anthropocene Review. If you haven't followed that podcast, it's amazing. Uh, he reviewed Tetris on it as well, and also talks about the craziness of the legal history of Tetris.
2: It's a, it's such a great game, and it stood the test of time. It's, it's one of those that just never just never gets old. It's just just so much fun to,
0: to play. Yeah, it also helps uh, people with PTSD. They've used it in military exercises and things like that. It helps people uh, with stress, PTSD, and a lot of other. Um, they, there's been a lot of mental health studies around Tetris, so won't yeah. get too off-topic kind on of, it. But mental
2: up. health is really important when you're working with the terminal on really complex things that just can't freaking work. When you just you know calm yeah. down and play it's Tetris open for up a minute. Tetris and
0: you're, you can not leave the terminal, so you're not going far away from work. You can just play yep. Tetris. We'll there, leave a link in the show notes for that. There's <laughs> uh, something said for getting, quote-unquote, in the zone
1: by doing some sort of menial, repetitive task just to block everything else that was stressing you out and playing a game is a fantastic way to help yourself get into the zone flow state yeah. Um, so So, Tetris is now in the show notes (laughs) another, uh, I think this is the last listener feedback that we had besides about music and um, show show upgrades essentially Um, this is from Laggard and it's in reference to episode 293 um He runs Cubes OS 3.2, and then I think he had some disk problems with his, uh, specifically with his SATA controller and his motherboard. Um, I'm curious, Laggard, if you have upgraded to Cubes 4 and experienced any of these same issues. Um, And if you haven't upgraded to Cubes 4... You definitely should. Three point two is is old news now, as far as cubes goes.
0: So definitely moved on to four. That that's one of the things I've always found with Linux just over time. Um, the earlier versions, like even from a year ago to now, just I feel like performance of my computer has gotten better in relation to I/O. And I I don't go in every kernel detail, but it, I know that there's been some work on I/O drivers and things like that. Um, those are always a finicky thing to it perfect and uh, a problem I had back to Caden live and editing was when there was a high level of IO activity, my computer paused a lot and I have an SSD and everything. It just kind of, but after um, a kernel update, it just seemed to be gone. So, hmm. so it
1: may, it may be related. And I did find one email um, that has now been read back from the 1st of December, uh, Matt Matt Yakel. I will get to you about NGINX Reverse Proxy. I know it's been some time, um, but thank you for the constant
0: reminders. Uh, (laughs) It helps. We will get there. It takes time. (laughs) All right. Is all the feedback we have? All right. Moving on to Distro Fever. Let's talk about the latest distros that are out. And what did you guys see on there? I won't lie. This is something we use quite a bit uh, right at the top there. I, I guess you can call it a distro? G-parted? Yeah. I they're, use it they're live a lot CD. As well. yep. mm-hmm. They they are a great go-to tool if you work in um, IT services at all because partitions are set wrong. We run into the weirdest things because you, you don't take over IT from a good IT guy. You're always taking over it because they had a problem with their previous it company and we have seen like hey we're out of space but we know our servers specced with terabytes of space and we're like someone partitioned this wrong and left all empty space that was a recent server issue we ran into like they they just never partitioned it (laughs) just whoops and um so yeah that's a good go to save expand partition solve stupid problems problems where some people think by expanding the drive in a vm it makes the drive bigger there's this whole little you know layering of file systems that are on there <laughs> yeah not everybody's aware of it clearly <laughs> so um yeah gpart is a great utility for uh, solving um, those issues and sometimes recovering partitions uh that have yep. been goofed that root's been written over I've used
1: it quite a few times may you never have to rebuild disk geometry in fdisk Oh
0: man, that's oh not gosh. a fun day. No, I have. I'm glad I don't use that tool much anymore. I use CF Disk a lot because um, I'm just. That's my go-to habit. One from the command line is CF Disk, but I learned on F Disk. I mean, because I've been using Linux long enough. I'm. I'm happy. Like those things are gone. I'm not that. I'm not that old guy who goes. These young whippersnappers need to learn how to use the command line better. I'm like, no, no. There's a GUI for this now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean. Um, We'll talk about it a little bit later in the show, but I've reviewed this before, and it's probably time to review it again. Tales, the... Tails is a demon based live distribution whose goal is to help its users browse the internet completely anonymously and circumvent censorship. Now, Tails is the it's the uh, amnesia distribution, so it boots up and forgets everything about you every time it reboots, and it connects to the Tor network automatically. It's designed never to be installed on your system, but to run on a thumb drive only, or however you want to boot it. It's a pretty slick system, and it's also kind of cool when you boot it up. It is VM aware. So if you are booting it up at a VM, it warns you that you still could be losing some of your anonymity. So it's made to run raw on the hardware, so it leaves no traces and connects to the Tor network and lets you browse the Internet as anonymous as Tor is, which it is anonymous. Um, We'll talk about that maybe a little bit later in the show. But it it does work. Um, It's a neat system. I use it for... um, my, some of my own testing when I want to test against my own sites, I'll come in from Tor, I'll see if the nodes are blocked and keep rerunning it because I actually block most of Tor nodes because no business client's going to come from a Tor node and visit any of my services that like a remote support software or anything like that. So we actually choose to block it like a lot of people do. That's one of my use cases I've had a lot for it is to try to poke at things and see to make sure my security, you know, isn't just set in the settings that I see, but actually is tested because uh, not-tested security is wishful thinking. <laughs> Correct. Uh, what else do we have in here? Uh,
2: Linux Mint Beta. Uh, I tried the Cinnamon release uh, not that long ago, video on my channel incoming. I just wanted to record it. I haven't used Mint in a long time. <coughs> That's what I wrote my first book about, but my publisher was never really interested in doing another Mint book, so I never used it much after that. But I was pleasantly surprised with it. I, I like the fact that they incorporated Time Shift into it which is actually what led to me uh, finding out more about TimeShift. At first I thought it was one of those Mint-specific applications that they bundle, but actually it's not Mint-specific at all. But it's a cool utility, like I mentioned earlier, to take system snapshots. So I really like that, and they relaxed their policy, which I hated in the past, where they would never give you kernel updates unless you jump through a few hoops as part of the update process. But that's not the case now because... When you go to the update manager, it just recommends that you create a system snapshot before you install updates, so you'll have something to roll back to if, uh, for some reason, the the backup or the update goes wrong. So I think that's a a good way to handle it, and it's cool that they included time shift. Um, Other than that, it's mostly standard Mint Flare. I didn't have any issues with stability or anything like that, so it seems like it's going to be shaping up to be a solid release. We also already talked about the new release of FreeNAS 11.2 which Tom and I are already using on our systems,
0: so I won't uh, go into any more detail there. I, but I actually had someone who commented. Yeah. I just didn't know this. Um, I, According to the person who commented on YouTube uh, this morning, I didn't verify this, that they haven't done all the language conversion for the new interface yet, so... That was oh. one apparently there's still some uh, help needed. So if you are bilingual, which I am not, um, if you ever want to contribute to projects like that, do reach out to the developers uh, because totally. sometimes that is something you go, but I'm not a good coder, but, yeah, but you know how menus look in two languages. That is um, a lot of requests I see out for uh, projects, people looking for bilingual. So that's a way yeah. you can contribute to open source without uh, having to know any coding. You just and have there, to be able to a speak couple, two languages.
2: There's a couple of other ways you can contribute too, uh, not to go um, too much off top but I'll just mention this really quickly. uh, Some quick, easy ways that anybody can contribute to open source. If you are downloading a Linux ISO for your personal use, you can, of course, donate money, but if you don't have money, an easy way to to give back is to download it via torrent, because you're not stealing your, your, too much of their bandwidth, so it doesn't cost them any money. But leave that torrent running and seeding for yep. an hour, two hours after you download it to kind of give some bandwidth back to the project. If you, you know, I know a lot of people have bandwidth caps, so if you can leave it running a couple of hours. Certainly, something
0: that you can do to, to help out there, and I do exactly that. It's funny when I've gotten notices because they detect torrent traffic. The sad thing is, it's not for movies. It's because mm. I'm I'm seeding a distro. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm
2: I'm I'm uh, donating. I'm donating to a project. Uh, yeah. But
0: that's just a quick way yeah. too. No, that's those are relevant things. Uh,
2: and another release <clears throat> for me, uh, Proxmox 5.3 was released. Oh, cool. And I did get a chance to upgrade my server to that release. But there really weren't very many features that impacted me, so I didn't notice anything different. It still works as good as it did before. There's features um you know like Ceph storage was um, updated, for example, and there's been some z f s improvements l. v m uh, improvements as well. I'm not currently using those technologies right now, so I can't really speak. Um, f- as far as how much better this release is than the last one. But, you know, it's, it's out there. So I didn't have any negative experiences. It was a very seamless
0: upgrade. You just run the upgrader, reboot the server, and then done. Um, and I'll leave a mention to this because people have asked about it. I don't, I don't know because I haven't tested this data set of project, but UB ports is the – because Ubuntu themselves <laughs> has dropped it, but there's uh, still people working on the project of getting Ubuntu I'm on so phones. I'm so
2: glad that they're still working on that.
0: Yeah, yeah. same here. Uh, uh, this is something that I've wanted for
1: a long time, and – on the UBPorts website they have a link to how you can build the software um, with this tool called Helium um, which is a project to unify the hardware abstraction layer for projects that run uh, GNU Linux on mobile devices with pre-installed Android anyways, they tell you how to build all this stuff so you can attempt oh, cool. installing it on your phone and
0: I'm I'm inclined to try this. And, yeah. you know, here's here's my kind of feelings on this, because some people have criticized me of being an open source advocate but running some of the Google stuff. I'm like, I run a business. If I was right. personal, and my personal life is different than my business life, where I do use more open source products. Google has made some seamless <coughs> integrations uh, and commercial tools that work well to help run my company and manage other companies. But yeah, I love, I love the idea of using something like this in my personal life, because I don't need Google in my life right. for personal. I only happen to use it for my business
2: life. I, I really want this project to succeed because... I I don't like Apple or Google. I don't like iOS or Android. I don't like either of them. Um, I like one more than the other, but without getting you know into a whole mobile roundtable discussion, which maybe we can do one day. I just want someday for a, a project like UBports to to um, you know really take off. Yeah, and be really very very with all the
0: alternatives on there.
2: The problem I run into in DevOps sysadmin is it's always assumed you have Android or iOS. Yeah. And um, for me to to have a client and i'm supporting them and to say well um okay i need to i need you to install a linux compatible vpn so my phone can connect to you before we could take on your business that's not going to work as much as i wish i i could mandate that um you know like you mentioned business it's it's totally true it it's assumed and there's vpn software that um it, your company might require and then there's um you know monitoring solutions that they might require And I don't know about you, Phil, but in my case, it's most of the time the case that companies don't want to give you a company phone anymore. They want to maybe give you a credit on your phone bill and then um, pretty much mandate you use your phone, your personal phone for business. And I hate that, but it seems the way the industry has gone.
1: I I get the phone credit, but I'm also really thankful that I don't have to carry a second phone anymore. Yeah, yeah, that's true.
2: I I wouldn't want to either. But that's at the same why time, they do it
0: that way. Is um, yeah, even for myself, um, because I, I can get my employees' phones, but it's mm-hmm. easier to pay their phone bills um, because they already have it. They've had the number for however many years, and getting people to manage two phones, like Phil it just becomes an annoyance.
2: It is, and I guess what I'm saying in a nutshell is, my dream is to be able to have a completely open source Linux phone OS on my phone, and not have mm-hmm. to have some kind of um, you know, downside as far as not having any apps to run or having issues like getting monitoring software or VPN connected to have an actual true Linux contender that's fully open source that has all the bells and whistles you'd expect, but full compatibility with the things that are out there. I know that might be maybe a big dream or a tall thing to accomplish, no, but, but I hope it does happen.
1: I, and yeah, I think it kind <clears> of <throat> needs to. Yeah, I just want to run, a run uh, the Pearl ASCII Aquarium on my phone. That's all I want in life. <laughs> I want, to, I want to run, on my phone, I
2: want to run C-matrix on
1: it. Yes, so, there so you go. C-matrix. I just have, like, the matrix uh, going down on the phone all the time. Yeah. All right. Any other distro news? Yes. Um, oh. From the GNU project, the, I'm going to butcher this, GUIX system distribution, uh, GUIX SD, it's a Linux-based stateless operating system that is built around the GNU GUIX package manager. Someone please correct me. Um, Show at smr8us to yeah. correct Phil. I always <laughs> called
2: it GUIX, but that's only because I gave up trying. You, is that's it GUIX? Like, no, because X isn't capital. So I assume if it was GUIX, it would have capitalized on oh. X.
1: I used to pronounce NGINX as NGINX, and it took me far longer than I want to admit to realize oh, that that was no. stupid. <laughs> that's awesome.
0: <laughs> Look, I said cache for a long time for caches. Same. Yep. So anyways. <laughs> uh, the the operating
1: system provides advanced package management features such as transactional upgrades and rollbacks, reproducible build environments, unprivileged package management, and per user
0: profiles. Um, this is all really cool. Yeah, that's pretty that is pretty neat. All right. So moving on to the tech news, because we got a lot to talk about here. There's all kinds of neat stuff going on. Uh, who wants to start with the tech news? So I'll throw in a few um, really
2: quick ones here. In a previous episode, I talked about, I, I believe I mentioned this, GNOME's decision to possibly stop uh, um, facilitating the installation of themes, which which is kind of a big controversy because theming is a big thing with Linux users, and GNOME's, Implementation of theming is a hack that doesn't really work well, especially GTK 3. GTK 2, I'm not referring to that. There's nothing wrong with theming that, but GNOME, they're, uh, they're basically it's a CSS hack just to be able to theme GTK 3. It's not even supposed to be a possibility. So, uh, in light of that, I saw an article recently on OMG Ubuntu where they're showing some screenshots of a work-in-progress GNOME theme that there's no idea or timeline as far as when this might come out. It might be in the next release, could be in five releases, who knows. But I think it's needed because if they're not going to do any facilitation on people's theming their desktop at all, the least they could do is make their current theme decent because it's very plain and not very exciting um, but they're working on it, and it also doesn't look very exciting, but it's a step in the right <laughs> direction. Um, I mean, the icon theme kind of reminds me of the old blue curve a little bit back in the um, day with um, you know old fedora and, um, I mean, the colors specifically. The theming, the window borders and things don't look all that different but better. But one thing that looks massively better is the mock-up they have for the gdm login manager which um i'm not a kde user but i have to call it like i see it kde has the best login manager in my opinion with the most the big the best feature set it looks really good and it almost seems like they're taking a um some inspiration from what kde is doing in kdm with their login screen which is the drastic one now of course it's a work in progress so they could go a completely different direction we may not see it for a while um not exactly sure but i thought that was pretty interesting because that's i think something they need to do because a
0: lot of people complain about gnome's default theme i um there was probably a time i mean when i was uh less interested in the way the os looked like i'm like oh command line all the way but uh, after seeing a couple as they've evolved, especially having nice UI design, it really changes your user experience with it. It's like, well, yeah, great. I know how to, and all my servers don't have GUIs on them, so I'm used to typing. But there is something to be said for a really nice UI design. And that's one of the reasons people always ask, why Pop! OS? I'm like, they just kind yeah, I, I of did some to nice mention. polish on that you know, GNOME base that they have. And like, this just looks nice. And it makes it very it usable um, to me. And there's a nice flow to it. Because not all the time I'm doing this. Sometimes I'm goofing off on the internet. And I just want things to be where I want them to be. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe GNOME should just take a
2: take some or just kind of work with System76. Like, hey, you know, can we, uh, hey, they seem can they have we work smart on that? Can we just change the colors? And, and I think that, you know, rather than invent something, Pop! OS has done the work already. And they it looks amazing. Why not, yeah. you know, incorporate GNOME's colors on their theme and make it default? And I think pretty much everybody would probably be okay with that. And in addition to that, I am going to have a link to an article to... It's a Linux Links article, although there's quite a few of these out there that talk about time shift, and I mentioned it in a um, you know, earlier in the show. But the, LinuxLinks.com, has, under an Essential System Tools series, has an article about time shift, and they talk about how to install it, how to use it, and, and things of that nature. So if you're curious how it works... I think that's something that's really they might want to look into. Uh, There's all kinds of different things you can do uh, with time shift. You can have a ButterFS snapshot if you have that already. But if you're not using ButterFS, like most of us aren't, unfortunately, unless you're on OpenSUSE, uh, they do have an rsync method where you can actually have the snapshot on your um, root volume. But if you want it on a separate volume or even a network share, You can use the rsync option to have that snapshot off your system. And I've not personally tried this, but they claim, not in this article, I believe as the developer, that you can literally change your distribution and then restore a snapshot and literally restore your previous distribution exactly as it was before you actually run it. And what's smart about it is even if you have, let's say you don't have a separate partition for slash home or slash root, they purposely ignore those directories. They will not back up those directories, so you need to back up those directories because it's all about system snapshots, not about data. But what's cool about that is you're supposed to be able to use this without erasing the data in home. So you can literally restore your old distribution but keep your data intact. So I think that's a pretty smart design. Now, I'll give the disclaimer that I have only spent a few hours on this, so if you are going to use it, you should definitely back up your system before you install Time Shift, just in case something goes wrong. The first time I used it on a non-Mint distro was Fedora. It completely shredded the OS, and in retrospect, I tried to, I disabled SC Linux, and I tried the whole thing over again, and it works perfectly fine. Um, I don't recommend disabling SC Linux by any means, but it just, to find the root cause. So proceed with caution, but it looks like a promising, uh, system to use. And I think it's something I'm going to dig deeper into at some point here in the near future, but if you're interested, there's a Linux links article that hit my newsfeed that talks a little bit more about it.
0: Oh, very cool.
2: And also there is, and getting into our show topic. So I kind of <laughs> saved the bigger of my news stories here for the end, but Um, You know, Microsoft is apparently switching Microsoft Edge to be on a Chromium base, which was very surprising to me at first. But to be honest, you know, Microsoft has been trying to reach majority market share with their browsers again for quite some time, and they haven't been able to do that. So it's Mm -hmm. almost like if you can't beat them, join them. And
0: so, yeah. yeah,
2: it's kind of like, where do I begin? It's a kind of a big story
0: there. I, yeah, I'm Mo- kind of surprised they chose that. I think, Phil, you have a some quote from Mozilla on this topic. Yeah, uh, in the at blog.mozilla.org, um,
1: a couple days ago, Mozilla came out with a very, very uh, strong opinion on this. Um, the opening statement is Microsoft is officially giving up on an independent shared platform for the Internet. By adopting Chromium, Microsoft hands over control of even more of online life to Google. So yeah. instead of having, uh, uh, we lose another browser from the the great browser war. Yeah, right. Um,
2: and that makes and that's important to note too. I mean, I know. Yeah, this is a Microsoft news story, and this is a Linux podcast, but it's this a, impacts
0: us. It does, and it creating this monoculture of browsers where there's only one. Now, there's a love-hate with uh, Google, and the reason why is they've actually done some interesting things uh, with the market. So if it wasn't for Google, because um, Phil's well aware of this issue, when Symantec wasn't issuing certificates properly and not uh, following guidelines, uh, and it was a disaster. We all can raise our hands and scream it's a disaster, but it, everyone the consumer market just goes on and clicks on websites that yeah. could have compromised security. When Google decided to use their market... Uh, control to go, we're going to punish Symantec, which directly affected me as a business owner because we have a bunch of IT support we do for medical companies, and turns out they all got, they lost their certificates because none of these companies update their certs. And so they couldn't get into all these big things because they all had Symantec issued certs. Oh. Speaking of not updating
1: certs, funny how that happens, Equifax. Yeah, we'll get into yeah. that topic. We're going to
0: get into so, that, too. But So Google has done good things like that because they actually shifted the market and they fixed a problem, and Symantec is no longer, uh, well, Symantec's not a provider of certificates anymore. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. yeah,
2: it's going to be interesting
0: to see it's how everything
2: plays out. I, I feel like Mozilla is a very important project to Linux. It's it, the default yes. browser on darn near every distribution, except for Antergos, as far as I can tell. And it, it's a great browser. I mean, to be honest, I think Google Chrome is actually my favorite browser, but I don't use it because I always go the open source direction. So Mozilla is yeah. my primary one. And I do love Firefox, but then I kind of wonder about Mozilla's future. You know, now they're the they're, they're becoming the black sheep because they're the the not Chromium-based browser now. It it seems like everything else is Chromium-based, especially now that Edge is moving that direction. So um, does that mean Microsoft Edge is going to come to Linux? Does that mean Mozilla is going to face some challenges on account of that?
0: I'm not sure. I I think it's just the shortcomings of... um, Edge being forced, and we see this all the time because we load Windows 10, and, you know, obviously the first thing we do with it is go download Chrome, and they've realized that. Um, the other problem that I don't think uh, I've seen anyone really address, but I don't know if you're aware of how the store systems work. So if you want to put something in the store of the Android store specifically, or the Apple store, you have to use their browser rendering kits. So even Opera has to use the Chromium mm-hmm. browser for any of their features. Microsoft knows that clients are going mobile, Microsoft realizes Windows Phone was a failure. They wanna be on the Android market, they wanna be in the Apple market. So having something that's supported easily in there is probably one of the ease of use of, we'll just go with the Google guys, uh, because Google is, they know where the majority of their user base is is on mobile. So it's kind of just a fact of life for them.
2: Yeah, and it kind of seems like monocultures in general are happening more and more. I mean, if you think about the, the, it, the, the industry, I mean, we also had, you know, Canonical, you know, maintaining their own desktop environment for a very long time, and they're all in on this in much the same way Microsoft is all in on Edge. And then eventually Canonical conceded and just went to GNOME. Now you have Microsoft conceding and going to Chromium and... I don't know. I just I don't know if there's if it's necessarily enough to say that a trend is starting to happen here. But if you kind of think about it, we see a lot of people and companies um, they want to spend all their time on services and not so much time on the software. So if they could sell more services and take their developers off of developing software, but you know push the company's services forward, that's where the money
0: is, and that seems to be where everything is going. It's interesting, um, but this this plays out just in in markets in general. Um, Tesla was the first car company since 1930 to file an IPO. Think about that. We went 80 years without another car company even starting. We had the big three plus Toyota and Honda. So we see these really narrow monocultures kind of frequently in markets. that kind of seem the way humans put things together. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, but it's still concerning. It is still concerning.
2: And I hope that um, I hope Mozilla I – don't, I don't have any reason to believe right now that Mozilla is in danger. I don't really want to, you know, frame it that way. Uh, I just feel like it's going to be interesting to see how they respond to this and, and, and during 2019 exactly how this whole thing is going to play out.
0: Yeah, it'll be interesting to keep an eye on. Um, what's next? Guys? That's all for me. Okay. Uh, the Supermicro uh,
1: <laughs> reported hack. Um, they, hmm. After a thorough examination and a range of functional tests, uh, the investigative firm um, found absolutely no evidence of malicious hardware on Supermicro motherboards. Yeah, I've seen that. So that means that
0: uh, Bloomberg is completely in the wrong here. I have been calling Bunk on his stories. I did a couple different uh, di- deep dives with it because even one of their named sources uh, did an interview that says they he, they misconstrued everything I told them. Uh, he did a plausibility, and they took his plausibility of could someone do something like this, and they asked him a question. And he wrote up because he does that type of hacking. Like he takes hardware and solder chip on top of chip and has a whole tutorial. He teaches classes on how to physically modify hardware to hack it. So they asked him about feasibility, and so he wrote a paper on how to feasibility of these things. That's someone asking me if it's feasible, not someone did they do it. It's more of how would they do it if they could. And he says, yeah, I wrote a how they could do it if they could. He goes, but by the way, this gets audited and everything else. You can't leave any of that other sections I have of how hard this is to do, the impossibility of it. Uh, So he went in and did some interviews, and he says, I'm a name source that... I think I was taken out of context, and uh, that was one of those big cracks in the uh, story of it just doesn't make sense, so yeah. I don't know and they're exploring the legal ramifications of it there are some interesting laws around it because defamation you can sue someone for defamation for making fun of Phil for making fun of Jay but once you become a certain size company the laws change of whether or not that way it protects people um, who want to write a hit piece on Microsoft they can't run around chewing on everyone who does something but it depends on the size of the damages so I don't know where it's going to fall legally but um, it created a lot of security awareness I don't know Bloomberg's not a unreputable company, and the right. one side note about this someone pointed to a 2013 Bloomberg uh, interview that said they give bonuses when markets move if a story moves markets, they give out bonuses to those reporter. What they mean is um, if that does that reporter does something that makes a change in the industry like they shook it up a little bit. Um, they can get rewarded. I don't know the validity or true. I, I, that's been a big, but that got said somewhere from someone at Bloomberg. So now everyone's scrutinizing it going, it did move the market. We've seen massive stock moves. We've seen people cancel orders, like it moved the market. And how does that fare? Uh, right. is, that fair? is that a fair assessment or not? That's not journalism at that point. Yeah, that sounds like a very uh,
1: unfortunate Silicon Valley. Let's disrupt the server market
0: yeah, it's a disruption in the market. Um, did they get lured into it? Did they get fooled into it? Um, did someone manipulate Bloomberg? I don't know. I want to know how this shakes out. I'm kind of interested on it. As long as I can go back to buying like cheap, super micro servers, I'm happy. Yeah, I, I took advantage. I got some. I got a great deal. Our free NAS server, Supermicro, we got it. I don't know if it was on sale because of that, but I will tell you, I paid way. We got eighteen terabytes of usable storage at you know everything, all these nice enterprise drives. Granted, it was used. We paid six hundred dollars including shipping. Like wow, this thing's in, this, we had a beast of a machine for. the rubble price was it was going for over a thousand before the article.
2: I have a feeling there's gonna be an off-air conversation happening today. Yeah,
0: I'll absolutely. Tell you, I'll tell you where I got it from. This thing's a, you guys check it out later. Anyways, let's keep let's get back on the news. Uh any other articles there, Phil? Um
1: some uh I've got some cool tools uh that I've found and I've also got a poem from our Sysadmin. Uh this one spoke to me because I get to work from home. Mm. Um, this is posted by uh Reddit user Uh, pandiculator, and it's can't get a hold of me. Skype status away. Not answering the phone. or in the office today. A server rebooted, but it didn't come back. My colleagues are mad as they pick up my slack. I sit with my beer (laughs) to the pub I did roam. What am I doing? I'm working from home. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's great. I love it. (laughs) Nice. And as far as cool tools, um, I sit in Vim almost or a Attempting to sit in Vim as, as Emacs users sit in Emacs. So I found this thing called uh, ControlSF.Vim. It is a plugin that utilizes ACK or AG or RIPGREP or any sort of uh, GREP replacement tool. And you can search across all of your file tree that you have opened in Vim for uh, a specific GREP pattern. So if I wanted to look for the string uh, "fill" in like a hundred different files, and I didn't want to um, tmux into a new window or open a new terminal session and grep there, but just stay in Vim, do all my stuff right there, I can. And as I make changes uh, to to this uh, grep search, um, I can I can see uh, files change on the file system, and it's. So incredibly helpful for my workflow.
0: That's neat. Hmm. Mm-hmm. try that out, Vim and that is, is a very
2: important tool for me as well. Vim and, control sf.
1: vim and Tmux. controlsf.vim. And then um, off-air, we were speaking about uh, Bitwarden. You oh, can yeah. You can host it yourself, and they have a command line utility that lets you uh, set passwords, get passwords, um, check the history and access of all of that. I want to dig into Bitwarden. It looks pretty sweet.
2: Yep, I use it, I um, so like it quite a bit.
1: The the Bitwarden command line, it's uh, written in TypeScript and Node.js, and it can be run on Windows, Mac OS, and Linux. Oh, awesome.
0: I love cross-platform. Mm-hmm. Same here. You get faster user adoption. All right. So I figured this was a fun topic to start with, key management. Uh, and the often over- overlooked art of key management, physically not like physical keys and this is a great discussion on reddit and they have a lot of good product links in there um, because this is a problem i have run into way more times so uh, no one knows where the damn keys are for the idf rooms either to get into them or there's a whole another set of keys that unlock the server cages and no one ever buys them all at the same time so now we have four different brands with four separate types of locks and Key rings everywhere. Uh, Someone has some really cool color coding ideas um, that they use at car dealerships. And someone who worked at car dealership uh, did a write-up on how they manage keys across things. Uh, Because this is like, we're good at managing SSH keys and things like that. But this is a challenge when we go somewhere and install something. We have to chase like five different maintenance people and then then play guess the key to figure out how to unlock something. Because we're adding something that was installed two years ago. They want us to fix the switch. Their downtime was extended because no one could figure out how to get into the stupid (laughs) cabinet. Oh, it's
1: it's the worst. It Uh, is. uh, There was a job where I had to get into the server room, but the door was locked and no key was available. I was supposed to get into there. That's the job. Um, (laughs) You could go on the other side of this room, put up a 12-foot extension ladder, and climb in through the ceiling and then unlock
0: the door. Yes, Um, I learned some of my lock picking skills uh, for these exact things. And because they didn't know where the keys were and i just picked those locks are actually really stupid simple um especially the glass facing ones i we and i'll admit we have one of those we have a glass idf cabinet uh, mounted on the wall it's just for looks the reality is it's glass tap it with a hammer if you really want to break into it (laughs) because if you're there to do nefarious things you don't care about the keys (laughs) but at least you should have some key management policy because it does uh, add to my day we did this bowling alley and it's just it's a long it's an eighty thousand square foot bowling alley with two idf rooms and then we had to find the keys because the maintenance guy has his own methodology and his but his methodology didn't include him being there that day <laughs> so, <laughs> no, no boy. yeah so we had to we had to bypass the panel and get a wire plugged in to fix something and yeah so it's a good it's a good discussion about the physical layer sometimes it gets overlooked if you do any type of on-site work um speaking of butter fs i heard you mention that uh f- for Onyx did a great comparison of FreeBSD, um, ZFS, Linux, Extent 4, ButterFS, and RAID with 20 SSDs all striped together. Uh, they did some oh. detailed performance reports, and as they usually do, they did some very thorough testing with more testing on the way of building things like RAID zeros with Extent 4 Uh and seeing how it performed versus ZFS, ZFS really came out strong on this, and in some cases, substantially faster than uh, ButterFS, even mm. though they're both copy-on-write file systems. Now, this is the free BSD ZFS, and so not the Open ZFS. Is that correct? Um, ooh, hard questions. I'll tell you in one second because on the very first page of that is the answer to that question. <laughs> yes, it is free BSD ZFS. Yeah, I thought it was. And they talk about they're going to do some further testing with uh, comparing it to the uh, Linux implementations. ZFS are waiting on another kernel update before their next round of testing. I remember that being in there. So they're going to keep th- this, this same 20 SSD setup is going to get retested with some other software as well, which is going to be interesting because these are the definitive comparisons that, um, that I just I like watching all this. This is really cool. I, I wouldn't mind having, if someone wants to give me 20 flash drives, I'll, I'll do some testing with them. <laughs> so anyways, uh, the Equifax breach was oh like really face palming. So here's the list, and we'll get to the save the best for last. So we have unpatched Apache struts. There was your uh, initial getting in there. Uh, apparently, and I, don't, I couldn't find this in this article, but someone said they had a plain text spreadsheet of random passwords. Another article said that. As far as Apache Struts go, that was a problem years ago. If if you weren't
1: automatically cert- if you weren't already aware that you're running Apache Struts in your system, or some software is, then not only are is that software vendor or uh, development team doing a, a terrible job of releasing updates, but you should also have some sort of notification that says, "Hey, maybe I should check
0: for Apache stress vulnerabilities because this thing is a garbage fire." Yeah, it's it's a, a big, complicated piece of software that has holes in it occasionally or all the time, maybe. Um, but the the base the the best part, the best for last, the most face homing moment was this line in this article: Equifix did not see the data exfiltration because the device used to monitor the vulnerable servers' network traffic had been inactive for 19 months due to a security oh certificate my gosh. expired." and the next line is when they install the certificate they go look at all this data egressing <laughs> so yeah uh wont if only there was something that could just
1: help automate getting and installing a certificate that would be what a world that would be what a world
2: would that would be let's mean that's almost like having a open source linux phone
0: oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> crazy 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 <laughs> so yeah the Equifax. i mean i don't think that we're overly surprised by the findings because um, I know the first thing I did when Equifax got breached is I uh, they have publicly posted their SOC audits, which they immediately started taking down. The the public. So if you're not familiar with the uh, security audit, there's a public-facing version that's kind of a light overview of the company's security standards from an independent third party. Um, and they had some, and no one, it just flies under the radar, uh, they had posted them from over the years. There was a collection of them every year. They went through their audit, and some of their audit had some glaring problems. Uh, they did not have a solid federated system. So when when a, when a contractor came in as an IT contractor, uh, they had to enter them manually or remove them manually from lots of different disconnected systems. Without They didn't, like, use Active Directory to federate all the access. So they would just kind of forget. To like, yeah, we deleted them out of one thing but not the four other things. And this was part of their uh, overview of SOC audit of not maintaining credentials. And their reply to it was, well, they got to be inside the network to do anything with it. <laughs> Famous last words. <laughs> oh, hey, Tom, can I hop on your Wi-Fi? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm in the network. It, it, right. Exactly. So you, you lock these things down. That's a whole other, yeah. Uh, but like I said, we weren't too surprised by it. It's just one garbage fire after another with them. Now, Tesla running Ubuntu. This is kind of cool. They got the latest version, well, the LTS version, so not the latest version, of Ubuntu running on his uh, Tesla. It's got pictures and everything showing it running in the car uh, and running HTOP so you can see what's going on. (laughs) So. I think this is going to be really interesting. I love, and I think we talked before, uh, Tesla has a clearly outlined, if you want to do something to your Tesla, you sign a waiver that you may break it, but we completely authorize you to do it. We have, we will hold you not responsible. Matter of fact, they even go a step further and say, if you break your Tesla trying to load Linux on it, we will give you a restore. We will give a best effort uh, to restoring your car back to factory default wow. so it works again. They've, And they also said, if in the event you find any bugs, we here's our disclosure policy we ask that you follow. Disclosed and disclose it to us. We don't want to... So instead of being like, hey, don't touch our stuff because we'll sue you, and that's actually what Chrysler had done to some people because um, uh, they didn't like people poking at it, Tesla's like, poke at it, um, and please let us know if you find a hole because we care about security. So they, they've they had a good relationship, I think, with the Tinkerer community. Um, I think that shows a lot to them as a company, and cool that he's got that running on there. Here's the question. If he messes with the self-driving car software, who becomes responsible? Hmm. Yeah. So that I think that's where we can have some scariness when you start messing with the car. And I get it um, that you... So the self-driving cars is going to be interesting, which I seen, I seen a great comic the other day. Um, it's two people standing there next to them, both driving Teslas, and a cop is pulling over another Tesla. And it says, do you know why my car pulled your car over? <laughs> 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 How far away were they at? Mm. Or the next country music song where this truck actually leaves them. <laughs> ah. That's a really expensive uh, Ubuntu server. So does this yeah. mean
2: we're going to be able to snap install more horsepower?
0: Can we snap install more horsepower? Can, it run, can my Tesla run Doom?
2: You know, that the, is the that's ultimate the metric. Test. <laughs> that's the metric. Yeah, that's the <laughs> metric.
0: I want to be able to run Doom while my self-driving car goes. Can I steer it with Doom? <laughs> can I just make it? Yeah, we can go off topic this. would be a lot of fun. Uh, if you haven't heard of this, this is pretty cool. NVIDIA Physics, P-H-Y-S-X, is the most popular physics simulation engine on the planet, according to NVIDIA <laughs> and according to Oracle. But it's uh, going open source. And what this is, is an entire, uh, you can design things and Of course, it does rely on lots of GPU power for NVIDIA, uh, but it's, once again, them building the hardware, but then giving you, they've decided to open source this really popular project for uh, designing physical interactions of objects. It's very GPU-oriented, but a lot of people are excited about this. Apparently, it's a good thing in the market. It's a very popular tool, and it's all going open source, which is wonderful. Um, That's great. I hope they open source more. I hope they keep going with that. That's great yeah yeah i mean it will uh if they open source maybe a driver or two that would be pretty cool driver open source
2: wouldn't that be interesting
0: that would be outstanding hey they're getting their feet wet they're at least this is a very popular product as i understood uh i've not used it myself but it looks pretty cool um and like i said they say it's the most popular one for this but at least it's going open source yeah um a tool for testing ssl websites now this tool is basically stacking together a bunch of other tools and i think phil has some commentary on this it's I'll uh, leave a GitHub link to it. It's called htrace.sh, and it's kind of to script together uh, understanding some of the way the SSL starts and look at it all from the command line. Because uh, sometimes it's, it's, you know, who wants to open up a browser to do this, especially uh, when you've got a whole lot of websites, you got to make sure all the security certificates are right. Is it using the right version of TLS? And there's a few other factors, like are there other uh, mixed-mode apps in there? So are some parts of the site being pulled insecure and secure? And uh, you, you took a quick look at this, didn't you, Phil? Yeah, uh, it's got some... Um it's got some cool utilities
1: uh, baked inside of it. So it's got the Mozilla Observatory, um, which does HTTP and HTTPS scanning that can also catch things like uh, content security policy. If you are um, a a web developer, um, it does an SSL Labs uh, API call to give you the quote-unquote grade of your website, which is really nice. We can check for a mixed content scan. So let's say... You've got um, an HTTPS website, but you load in images incorrectly over HTTP, or you've got uh, a link to someone else's website where you're we're pulling a piece of data over HTTP. Um, this tool can alert you of that. And then it can also run uh, various unmapped scripts. And yes, absolutely, you can run these by yourself, um, just all these different scripts, But having it baked into one
0: one little uh, bash script is really nice. Yeah. That way you can just kind of get a quick overview of it. Um, And the nice thing is it's all open source, and he lists out all the utilities that were used to build this tool so then you can further explore with any of those utilities, uh, do a deeper dive into sorting out your website. So I thought it was was pretty handy, uh, pretty neat little tool. For the IT administrators out
1: there who still have to provide reports to uh, their managers or directors... You can run htrace.sh in report mode,
0: and it generates an HTML report. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. So you can make management happy with it and give them something pretty to look at because they don't always like the command lines.
2: <laughs> I'm like the one director that does like the command
0: line, the um, last I, of a dying breed. I, well, <laughs> well, actually, I, I think the, the opposite. I think you, yeah. there's a coming of age of these people uh, like you who are getting into management positions with technical skills. I think that's something uh, – seeing people who have you know technical skills coming in to be a management role helps dramatically. It um, does. I, it, it
2: helps with team building too because it's like – it's one thing if you have a, a director or manager say, hey, go do this thing but then someone in my case I'm like hey let's do this thing and I want to I want to equal share on this because this is fascinating and I want to see how this works and it's like you know, a, deep, because um, a deep dive. It's all, it's I, fun. I way.
0: was a big fan. I read uh, Alexis Ohanian's book, uh, founder of Reddit, and one of the things he credits is the fact that he knew how to code means he, he's not much of a coder, but he understood what was possible and that really helped him build his teams for Reddit and things like that. He goes, uh, he became, you know, CEO, uh-huh. but he's like understanding what code can do. I'm not asking him to do anything that the code can't do. Even if I can't code it, I understand it deeply. I understand what it can, I also understand what it can't do. So he, being able to have that relationship is a lot better, having a deep or technical yep. knowledge uh, when you're building a company. I thought that was it's a good insight uh, from that.
2: And that reminds me of a comic. I can't remember what it's from, where a boss is asking his employee why, or the software engineer employee why the project is late, and he says, "Well, it's a problem with my SQL." And then the manager says, "Well, use someone else's SQL." <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is an answer we have all heard. Uh, This is in French, but it can be translated, or if you are smart enough to speak French, because I don't. (laughs) Uh, VLC software developer and French hacker named Knights of the Order of Merit. Uh, An honor was bestowed Mm. on. They got uh, national recognition for their efforts in the uh, technology world. Uh, And, of course, I think all of us have used VLC at some point, and it's been around for a while. He's... He's an interesting guy. Um, I've read about him. They've been, you know, VLC has just been a really cool project forever. It's kind of my go-to for video playback, and it, it supports it sure so is. much stuff.
2: It does. I, I was actually using it yesterday because I was re- when I was recording the videos on with Fedora. I wanted to play back the footage, and it says, "Well, you can't. You need, you know the codec." So I click the button to install, and it does and installs a codec, and still says you need codecs can't play it. So I'm like, you know what? DNF install VLC. No yeah.
0: problem. It just works. Just um, works. It actually has, a couple, it has some transcoding features. It also has some really cool RTSP streaming features. So mm-hmm. when we've had to build RTSP solutions uh, using, like, the Unify cameras, uh, we've had that as a solution where someone wants something lower powered that will run RTSP that will pull. Uh, you just set VLAN, and then you can um, bookmark it with the VLC. And hmm. it's actually a really slick way to stream uh, from multiple camera sources and pull it together. And, of course, it's all open source and supports some scripting, so you can actually put together an interesting camera solution with it. I had no idea about that. That's awesome. Yeah. It does. It, uh, it's really, really cool stuff. It's nice because we don't even have to own the software. We actually have some special streams set up, and we can just use the VLC to open up a specific stream and look like the front counter camera. So the guys in the back, when no one's in the front, the guys in the back can see who walked in the door. It's, it, it's stupid simple without even opening software It's open up VLC. And it, it, wow. Yeah, novel. It, it's uh, more flexible than people know. Um, Google closing Google groups, Plus. Google Plus. Yeah, Google Plus closing early. Yes. Not Google uh, closing. How, <laughs> how much earlier? Oh, boy, I need to have that ready.
1: You, I think it's on uh, four months earlier because of yes, some, four months. <clears> some extra reported data leakage.
0: Yeah, they found Ooh. another hole. And it. they're not clear whether or not this hole came from closing the other hole. Um, But no one's personal credentials, just personal details you thought were private. And this has been my thing because this happened to Facebook recently too. If you don't want it on the internet, don't put it on the internet. Like Facebook compromised a bunch of people's uh, personal uh, message streams. I've never put anything personal. I never put a password in it. I've never put a personal photo that I didn't care that was on the internet in there. I've never trusted them. And I encourage no one to trust any of these companies to right. never have a problem with personal data. It's used for, hey, cool, here's the baby photos, things like that. Oh, well, they're on the internet. I kind of wanted to share them anyways. Um, and that's kind of what this was with Google. They opened up stuff that was supposed to be marked private on accident. So it's a breach, but not the same way. And it's not exactly a breach. It's a flaw they found. Right. Anyways, Google says we're not able to maintain this anymore. So I think they upped the closing date format. so it just closing sometime next year and then I'm fuzzy even look at the air where did they put that and, and that's oh um I'm sorry August of tw- uh, April 2019 that's the that is it's towards the end there's an the oh, exact boy. date they're closing yeah the end, that's
2: so. well no, I, I actually like Google+ Plus. Uh, so a lot of be people do. to be sad see it go I, I just I don't use it really so much for the social sharing thing I just like a lot of the Google groups or, or the Linux groups and, yeah. and things and seeing some some people post some articles or how to's and, and things like that it's just fun to go through and see those kinds of posts without going through like 50 memes to get to one article that I actually care about like a like on Facebook right so it seems like a a refuge from Facebook in that regard I mean yeah there's some memes but nowhere near as many so I'm sad to see it go but I understand you know yeah, yeah.
0: they be. just didn't have enough community, and they did seem to have. And I think it's very relevant to our listeners. Uh, they just had a huge tech community. That is probably their biggest one. Right. Unfortunately, we don't represent the mass audience that they needed. They need that mass two billion user market like Facebook has to make it a worthwhile, profitable venture. They need you need mass audience, the consumers who prop up and pay for all the development it takes to run a scalable uh, social network system. So
2: I'll probably just spend more time on Reddit now. I think that, that'll solve the same goal for the I, most part. <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, <laughs> it just creates new problems. I'm, yeah. I'm really trying to like the new Reddit, but that's it's a fire. And I'm, yeah, there's... Uh, I hear you on that one. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to give them some... I'm going to give them some harsh <laughs> feedback on that one day. <laughs> I think the community already doing it. Um, Tor Project. We mentioned it as they have a new version of Tails, which uh, leverages the Tor Project. Uh, and the Tor Project is... the. Not torrenting, but the the dark web, the big scary place that everyone talks about. The Onion Router. The Onion Router, yes. And it's pretty cool if you're looking for a privacy way to do things. They've always uh, granted it. Yes, it was funded by the military. It was funded by the big bag government um, in the early days of funding. But they've been a very hands-off independent uh Nonprofit organization they even though the big bad government as people like to point out funded it uh they funded the internet too so uh sometimes they fund things that are worthwhile and this is definitely one of those projects yep. so the dark web um is still dark they there has been talks of how they've discovered people on the dark web it takes a nation state level actor and they can only make approximations of where your in point and out points are in there uh, most of the hacks that we've found to de-anonymize Tor have failed there's not any one way to do it um but one of the other things that people you know money means influence is i have a link to their uh tour project form 990 so it's their full disclosure of where all their money comes from and who threw money at them so the 2017 breakdown uh Seven hundred eighty-nine thousand came from the U.S. government-backed Radio Free Asia. Six hundred thirty-five thousand came from U.S. government-backed Sri International. Five hundred ninety-four thousand from Swedish International uh, Corporation, and U.S. National Science Science Foundation in the U.S. was five hundred forty-eight thousand. Mozilla also matched a bunch of money as well. It, it's a great project because we kind of still need some anonymity on the internet. It does protect, you know, journalism and things like that who, you know, there's real legit use cases that Tor has been used for, uh, should be able to share things. Uh, it's been used by whistleblowers, famously Snowden, I believe, used some of the stuff on there. So it's still an important project, it's still an important piece of the internet, as far as I'm concerned. Um, last but not least is the upside of all these breaches there's an upside to all of our data being dumped out there and uh, everything else you know because then we get to learn what everybody's passwords are and it doesn't disappoint they have the top list they have every year (laughs) number eight is new though the only one is really new because one two three four five six is still the most popular password qwerty and all the usual suspects but we have a new contender we have number eight at sunshine (laughs) which i thought i I don't know. I've never used that password. Clearly would...
2: not a Michigan person that made that password. <laughs> I don't think. It's a, yeah, we have
0: Michigan gray right now because it's winter. So, uh, yeah, I mean, some of the other ones shifted. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine is now number three, and that's because after all these security breaches, companies said, "Well, we're going to add more entropy. We need we need nine digit minimums." So, well, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Wow. <laughs> we didn't change human behavior. We just made it longer just they have a whole list it's the top 25 passwords uh qwerty123 is 25 now it, it wasn't in the top 25 list before um so this one sounds high entropy until you stare at a keyboard for about two seconds it's exclamation point at symbol hash or pound uh dollar sign percent <laughs> carrot and then uh, ampersand star so yeah then you realize it is oh, held the shift on. key and walked across the keyboard <laughs> It it looks high entropy at the very first glance until you go, Oh, shift one, two, three, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. It looks complicated. it's really complicated to say, but it's um if you it's easier to say shift one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I'm really surprised that Hunter two wasn't on that list just out of uh I think it fell off. Hunter was on there for a long time. I don't know why Hunter is such a popular one. Oh, Monkey's number 18 now. So it's down five spots. It's still on the <laughs> list. I thought I missed it. It's number 18. Monkey for a long time was a really popular password. Sure I really was. don't know why. I don't, I, I've never used it. Um, I, oddly enough, I have some lower entropy passwords uh, that I used to use years ago. They're still in my head. And I've typed them into the uh, password breaches. And by absolute shock... They have not been used. It was my password I used for some gaming stuff. I had a specific password uh, related to a non—well, most of all my passwords are non-English words. Um, it's as close of a hint as I'll ever give. <laughs> so. You've just lowered the corpus of uh,
1: the words we can use to find out your password.
0: Yes, Thankfully, there's still all those other words. There's still all those other words. Well, they're not really words, so that helps in general. I, I have a, I have a method. not even a method. Most of my stuff's in LastPass. The majority of it, so and then I, they're all strung together. I some of them are over thirty characters because I just, if you watch someone like you type in something, I'm like my password. <laughs> it's a phrase. It's long. It's a short novel. It's a short novel. It's a story I have.
2: I've had people comment, even my um, encryption password to boot my computer was like kind of pretty much a sentence. I'm like on my keyboard just mashing a bunch yeah. of buttons. are like, whoa, how long is that password?
0: <laughs> you know, I had to count it one time. I never thought about it because once you come up with the phrase, the numbers, and the um, punctuation, all everything that goes into what I wrote for this, it's, it is a lot of entropy in there, and I'm used to typing it. So, yeah, it, it, it's those things we do to make things a little bit – harder on people and hopefully you're doing the same things and that wraps up our show <laughs> Yep. yep. Uh, we're not going to do any outgoing music for now I don't have any um, and Tony's not here to have it and we're still deciding if that's going to still continue to be a part of the show we all got to get together and have a beer and uh, talk about How we're going to restructure this, but we also love listening to some feedback from all of you on how you think we should structure the show. Did you like what we did today? Did you hate what we did today? Uh, Please email show at smlr.us to to check us out and find out, you know, let us know what you think of all this stuff they're doing here so we can do that. So this was episode 296 Monoculture is a Cancer. And this is Tom Lawrence, Phil Perotta, Jay LaCroix. And talk to you guys next time. Thanks. You've been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. If you would like
1: more information about this or other shows, go to smlr.us. Feel free to send comments to show at smlr.us or give us a call at 734-258-7009. I'm John Miller. If you don't like it,
0: you can bite my 8-bit metal ass. That's bite worth a while.